laundromat. We passed through the walls and hovered above the Chinese attendants, folding customers' pants and shirts, and old Ukrainian women thumbing through gardening and gossip magazines as their children's and grandchildren's clothing tumbled rhythmically in identical coin-operated dryers. We were new at haunting, unsure of ourselves, could only watch as more veteran dead caused bottles of detergent to spill and electric washers to overflow and the change machine to spontaneously spit out streams of quarters that the Ukrainian women scooped into their headscarves as the attendants cursed both them and the machine in Mandarin. To ward off spirits, the attendants wore silver talismans around their necks and placed jade figurines on the shelves next to containers of bleach and hung an octagonal paqua mirror on the laundromat's front door, but the veteran dead didn't care. They interrupted spin cycles and levitated underwear with embarrassing stains and changed the television from Chinese soap operas to cutlery infomercials or softcore porn while we haunted inconspicuously in the shadows, read gossip magazines over the Ukrainian women's shoulders, caught up on which celebrities were cheating and which ones were dying and which ones, like us, were dead. After closing, there was no one in the laundromat to haunt, so at nights we haunted a 24-hour Texaco. The X in Texaco had been stolen by classmates of ours the previous fall and had not yet been replaced. Maybe it was still on backorder. Maybe the Texaco's management still held out hope that the X would somehow find its way back between the E and the A. There were no gardening magazines in the Texaco, and the gossip magazines were cruder, their claims and accusations more outrageous, grainy, poorly lit photographs allegedly proving celebrity meth sprees and congressional infidelities, and the employment of Kurt Cobain and Elvis by a Decatur, Illinois blockbuster video. The magazine printed a list of Kurt and Elvis's October staff picks. Kurt's top pick was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Elvis's was a tie between Steel Magnolias and Gone with the Wind. We didn't sleep anymore, didn't eat or drink or dream. We didn't haunt KFC or Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen because we could no longer taste or smell fried chicken, and this made us wistful and sad. We haunted an orthodontic practice, a jiffy lube, a body and nail salon. They performed bikini waxes at the body and nail salon, and we haunted the private room where the women undressed, but that made us wistful and sad, too. Each of us remembered the first time we had witnessed a girl shed her clothing at summer camp, at a Bible study retreat, in the back seat of Toyota Corolla. Was any moment in a boy's life more transformative and magical? We couldn't smell women anymore either, and it affected us in profound and unanticipated ways. We had taken so much for granted before we had died. We had been poor evaluators of the value of the simplest things. We haunted a stationery store and were the fronts of all the cards. Happy birthday, congratulations, get well soon, tried to guess what the messages said inside. 
Sometimes a customer would open a card and our hypotheses would be refuted or confirmed, but many of the cards remained unopened, their punchlines and concluding sentiments forever a mystery. That one, we'd say, as the customers scanned through the rows of cards, opened that one, but the customers never listened. Happy anniversary, said the cards. Mazel tov, felicidades, Merry Christmas. We are truly sorry for your loss. He was joking. They were seventeen, and he proposed to her in a corner booth at Steak and Shake, and she laughed so hard that Dr. Pepper sprayed out of her nose. The second time, Lucky decided to procure a ring so Diane would understand that he was serious. He visited a jeweler's within walking distance of his school and asked the saleswoman how much he should spend on an engagement ring to guarantee a successful proposal. And she said, while of course the store couldn't guarantee a positive outcome in any contractual sense, the ring was merely one of a multitude of factors that a prospective spouse considered when deciding to respond to her suitor with a no or a yes. The general consensus was two months' salary gave any man a fighting chance. Unfortunately, Lucky's only reportable income for the fiscal year was $40 for feeding his neighbor's cats while they were vacationing in the Wisconsin Dells, plus $2 for carrying groceries to the car of an elderly stranger who had mistakenly thought that Lucky worked at the local supermarket and kept referring to him as Stephen. So two months' salary priced Lucky out of just about every ring on the market except those made of plastic and set with hardened sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Lucky was disappointed, but undaunted. He thanked the saleswoman for her time and took a final longing glance at the gold and platinum and precious stones on display and decided to forget about the ring and instead proposed to Diane in a nicer restaurant. The lighting in Steak and Shake had been all wrong. He could see that now, harsh and damningly fluorescent. And so he spent the school week scouting more aesthetically appropriate locations. Steakhouses, bistros, sushi bars, supper clubs, churrascarias. And on Saturday took Diane to a fancy seafood place near the canal locks where there were real candles on the tables and fake candles on the walls and the lights automatically dimmed every 45 minutes starting at 6 o'clock. The restaurant was famous for its stone crab, but Lucky only ordered an appetizer because his 40 cat feeding dollars had dwindled to 25 over the week, and at the seafood place $25 could only go so far. Diane, who was paying for her own meal, ordered a shrimp cocktail, a half order of stone crab claws, a virgin strawberry daiquiri, and a lobster bisque. Diane's parents were both opticians. Lucky's mom was a bus driver, and his dad, according to his mom, was a bottle of single malt scotch. 
Lucky waited patiently as the lights dimmed and dimmed, and when his and Diane's table was suitably shrouded in darkness, he got out of his chair and fell to one knee and asked Diane to marry him again as their server refilled their glasses of ice water and asked Diane if she wanted another virgin strawberry daiquiri. Diane told their server yes, and Lucky, for the second time, no, and Lucky said she should wait until dessert to make her final decision. He had heard the chocolate torte was exquisite, and perhaps it would change her mind. Diane smiled. She and Lucky had known each other for two weeks. Diane had attended private school since kindergarten, but had recently been kicked out of our merciful Redeemer Preparatory Academy for lighting a classmate's pigtails on fire during advanced chemistry, and thus she found herself at Rosa Parks High, where she and Lucky shared a gym class, team sports, taught by the school's disgraced former varsity basketball coach who had choked his senior point guard during a humiliating 30-point defeat by their arch-rival Adelaide Stevenson in last year's regional quarterfinals, and who now spent every workday providing his 60-student physical education classes with a single kickball and half-heartedly reading and rereading the USA Today sports section until the final bell graciously rang. The first time Lucky saw Diane, he suffered a grade 3 concussion. Diane hadn't brought gym clothes to school and was exiled at the bleachers with the similarly dress code violating goths and stoners and cholas and punks. And when Lucky saw her perched alone on the bleachers upper deck in her baby doll Iron Maiden t-shirt and merciful redeemer knee socks and checkered skirt, he lost all awareness of his surroundings, his 59 classmates and the scoreboard and the bleachers and the championship commemorating banners on the wall faded to a myopic blur. Diane, at first oblivious, finally meeting his gaze and offering in return a subtle sfumato smile, and at that precise moment, as the corners of Diane's mouth raised ever so slightly, as her eyes met his, as her hands straightened her self-altered Catholic skirt, Lucky was drilled in the face by a maliciously hurled kickball and knocked violently backward onto the gym's parquet floor. Because Lucky had no memory of having seen Diane when he regained consciousness minutes later, Diane standing over him in a circle of concerned and or fascinated classmates, the gym teacher reluctantly abandoning his USA Today and shuffling over to confirm that one of his students wasn't dying or dead, Lucky got to fall in love with Diane at first sight, twice, a generous gift that few men are ever afforded. One of Lucky's classmates was a student aide to the athletic trainer and asked Lucky a modified set of Maddox head injury assessment questions. What gym are we at? What period is this? What did we play in team sports last week? Did your team win? But Lucky ignored the aide's queries and instead focused solely on Diane. Hey, are you new here? He said, still lying supine on the floor. I've never seen you before. I like your Iron Maiden t-shirt. What's your name? Diane, she said. 
the student aide frowning and scribbling an indecipherable shorthand on the gym teacher's clipboard. Diane, repeated Lucky. He attempted to rise, failed, and instead extended his right hand. I'm Lucky, he said. The gym teacher breathed a sigh of relief. He was in no mood for a minor under his supervision to lapse into a coma. Dessert came, the chocolate torte, garnished with mint leaves and drizzled with raspberry coulis, which Lucky had read on the menu as coolest. Diane took the first bite and the lights dimmed again, until Diane's face was illuminated only by the flickering candles, until the Rosa Parks Athletic Department XL and Lucky's sweatshirt was barely visible, and Lucky again dropped to one knee as Diane sliced for herself a larger piece, giddily devoured the chocolate, and smeared raspberry coulis all over her chin. Diane had agreed to go to Steak and Shake with Lucky the week prior, after he had invited her with a typewritten message on official school letterhead delivered by an office aide during Diane's third period English class. Why not, she figured. She'd been getting pretty tired of the boys at Merciful Redeemer who had tried to impress her with their SUV sound systems and parents' lake houses and unfettered access to ecstasy mushrooms and high-grade marijuana and cocaine. Lucky wasn't bad-looking, and he wasn't good-looking. His face was a little mangled from the kickball incident, but she was confident the swelling would eventually subside. After he'd asked her to marry him, and she'd laughed and nasally sprayed Dr. Pepper all over her and Lucky's cheeseburgers, they'd still had a nice enough time. They talked about Iron Maiden, Chuck Norris, Steve Buscemi, Michael Bay, the Rosa Parks cafeteria lady with a glass eye, the custodian who covered his rolling trash can with minor threat and Fugazi stickers, the chain of events leading up to Diane setting her classmates' pigtails on fire. And now here they were at the seafood place by the canal locks in the dark. And there was Lucky on one knee on the floor, and there were those words again, Will you marry me? As Diane shoveled the last piece of dessert into her raspberry-smeared mouth, the chocolate torte was indeed exquisite. Diane still said,
Death takes the A-train, the glossy-eyed businessmen, the catnapping cleaning women, the iPods on full volume and the garbled announcements, the disregarded witness of the evangelists, the defaced ads, spy thrillers, class action lawsuits, skin treatments, the young professionals with conflict-free coffee, the retirees with heartbreakingly contorted spines, the panhandlers, the accordion players, the break dancers, the acid attack victims, the barbershop quartets, the entire kindergarten classes, the Sikhs and the Shiites and the Hasids, death's skin pale, his fingers thin and skeletal, his eyes red as hot coals, the backpacks, the rucksacks, the designer handbags, the shopping carts full of unlaundered clothes and empty 12.5 ounce soda bottles, the emergency brakes, the pictographic instructions, the perfumes and colognes and leftover stir-fries and curries, death sandwiched between taxidermists and midwives, urban planners and wedding planners, barbers and buyers and baggers and bloggers, their pulses quickening, their palms sweating, their eyes searching for an open pathway, an exit strategy, a gap in the crowd, with the train is filled to capacity, over capacity, passengers pressed against each other in unnatural and compromising ways, and so there is no escape from death, not until Columbus Circle, the shaking pensioners, the howling infants, the bag-laden indigents strangely unaffected by death's proximity, smiling, whispering, singing hymns and negro spirituals, surprisingly at peace. Death takes a greyhound. Death boards the Staten Island Ferry. Death rides a Caltrain, a Metro Mover, a Ski Lift, a St. Petersburg Clearwater Super Shuttle, a Megabus. Death catches a red eye from Newark to West Palm, flies coach to Wichita, upgrades to business class for a non-stop from Myrtle Beach to Dallas-Fort Worth. Death is granted special exemptions from the carry-on baggage policies of Amtrak. Death is selected for a random security screening at LAX. Death is thanked by a disembodied voice for flying the friendly skies. Death indicates he is capable of performing all duties required to sit in the emergency exit row. No one makes small talk with death on the flight from Dane County Regional to Chicago O'Hare. No one asks death what he does for a living on the Peter Pan bus to Albany. No one rides the tea with death and asks, how about them pats? Death passes the time reading People, Glamour, Popular Mechanics, In-Flight Magazines, Us Weekly. He watches How I Met Your Mother and Everybody Loves Raymond. He listens to sports talk radio and motivational podcasts and a bootleg recording of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young at the Fillmore East in 1969. Death hails a cab. Death requests a zip car. Death flags down a rickshaw. 
Death reserves a 39-foot stretch party limo known colloquially as the Admiral. Death sits in the Admiral alone, always alone. He gazes out the tinted windows of the adjacent traffic. Station wagons, minivans, semis, delivery trucks, hearses, sedans. He reads their bumper stickers and license plates. He knows how every one of their drivers will die. Death sips a martini, a Bloody Mary, Hennessy, Patron, Grey Goose. He adjusts an air conditioning vent. He dims the lights. He stretches out his legs. Death sticks his thumb out on the side of US Highway 151, a few miles outside of Dubuque. No one stops. Death walks along the highway, alone, always alone. Death rides a go-kart. Death charters a helicopter. Death hotwires a Honda Civic in the parking lot of an Omaha pottery barn and gets as far as Texarkana before the transmission gives out. Death on the move, always on the move. Death asks an elderly vacationer from Sault Ste. Marie for the time and Concourse E of Miami International, and she passes out onto the carpeted floor and fractures her pelvis. Fellow travelers rush to the elderly woman's aid. No one rushes to the aid of death. Diane going steady with Clay Rockmore, starting fullback for the Rosa Parks varsity football team. Clay, the son of Stone Rockmore, construction mogul, responsible for seven of his town's ten tallest buildings, eight if you don't count the antenna on the McGuffigan Tower, which Stone Rockmore doesn't. Diane and Clay sharing milkshakes at Louise's Diner, walking hand in hand across the wood chips in Picnic Park, singing the vocal hooks of top 40 hip-hop songs in Clay's cherry red Lexus, necking in the hallways and beneath the bleachers and in the back of the darkened auditorium during a guest lecture on teen pregnancy. Lucky asking for Diane's hand in marriage, just the same every day. In AP Statistics, French 4, Intro to Social Psychology, Writers in Their Times, Over the School PA in Morse Code, on Bamboo Parchment and Beautifully Executed Oriental Calligraphy, with bright pastel bubble letters stapled to guidance counselor bulletin boards, via messages in bottles, 20-ounce Cokes, Sprites, Mountain Dews, Peach Frescas, Orange Fantas, Clay wanting to smash Lucky's face in, but Diane pleading with him, No, baby, please don't. He's harmless. Besides, I think it's kind of sweet. Lucky roughed up anyway, the varsity linesman clotheslining him in gym class, the defensive end throwing him into a science olympiad trophy case, two tight ends waterboarding him in a locker room urinal, a linebacker knocking three of Lucky's teeth out with a single right hook. Lucky still proposing, 
Black-eyed, bloodied, bandaged, limping, will you marry me, written in permanent marker on Diane's physics teacher's whiteboard, snuck into the errors and corrections section of the March edition of the school paper, spelled out with tater tots on a cafeteria table during first lunch. Lucky's mom doesn't understand her son's infatuation with Diane. She doesn't understand why Lucky wants to get married at the age of 17. She didn't even think it was legal, but Lucky printed out the state marriage statute for her, highlighted the words, if a person is between the age of 16 and 18 years, a marriage license may be issued with the written consent of the person's parents, guardian, or custodian, and magneted the statute to the refrigerator next to the phone numbers for the gas company, the fire department, and the poison control hotline. What makes Lucky think he has her consent, she says to herself, anytime she glances at the statute while raiding the fridge for some milk or cinnamon rolls or Boston cream pie. That Diane girl's nothing but trouble, got kicked out of Catholic school for setting some girl's hair on fire, messes around with that big hulking Rockmore boy, saw her at the Piggly Wiggly last weekend wearing damn near next to nothing. What does Lucky see in her anyway? My Lucky needs a sweet girl, like that Sandra Huckingbush who reads horoscopes to the elderly every Sunday at the convalescent home on Route 47. But Lucky doesn't want Sandra Huckingbush. He wants Diane. She's the one, Ma. She's the one. Sweetheart, how many times does she have to tell you, his mom says. You're a great kid, and I love you, and so will some lucky girl, one day. But it ain't her, and the day ain't now. You're 17 years old, Lucky. Like I say, I love you, but you don't know a damn thing about love. Time will come, but right now, ain't no one the one. But Lucky pays his mom no attention. He asks Diane to marry him during a scheduled fire drill. He proposes to her while leaping out of a giant hollow cake. He orders a singing telegram, rents a miniature horse, hires a string quartet, a full mariachi band, a troupe of mimes. To pay for his expenses, he delivers newspapers, walks dogs, rakes leaves, hustles his friends in ping pong and blackjack and pool. Lucky is a fantastic pool player. His friends call him Minnesota Fats. The mariachi band appears in the hallway during passing period in traditional dress, flanked by compensated members of the Rosa Parks Color Guard, who dance and twirl and spin prop rifles and maize and blue flags, and the school security guards yell into their portable radios as Lucky follows closely behind, dressed in a rented tuxedo, a bouquet of black beauty roses in his hands. Lucky will be suspended for a week for the stunt. 
His mom will whack him upside the head with the business end of a whisk broom and tear the state marriage statute off the refrigerator. The varsity football team's entire starting offensive line will jump Lucky outside his home as he's taking out the trash and pummel him unconscious. The mailman finding him lying face down, blood-soaked on his own front lawn. Lucky stripped by the lineman to his underwear. The ambulance arriving minutes later. Lucky whisked away to Garfield Memorial Hospital as neighbors stand on their front porches and gawk. But for now, Lucky is smiling, wide, triumphant, revealing all his existing and missing teeth as Diane smiles back slyly at the end of the hallway, even as she shakes her head as she fidgets with the take-home test in her hands, as she mouths the familiar reply that Lucky's come to expect, and yet not expect, each time as her lips form the words, Lucky imagining them magically transforming into something else, something miraculous, something other than a refusal, a denial, an apology, I'm sorry, Lucky, please, no. After we died, we played Never Have I Ever. We played 20 questions, Would You Rather, Red Car, Blue Car, Marry, Fuck, Kill. We did not play Shoots and Ladders. We did not play Monopoly, Scrabble, Candyland, or Cheesy, Don't Break the Ice. We entered strangers' homes and tried to influence their contests of strategy and skill and chance, but our ethereal hands couldn't roll the dice, couldn't flick the spinners, couldn't collect $200, couldn't pass go. Never had we ever seen the ocean. Never had we ever scaled a mountain, flown a hot air balloon, traversed a rope bridge, ridden an elephant, a zebu, a yak. Would you rather dance Swan Lake with JFK or play touch football with Mikhail Baryshnikov, we asked. Would you rather ice skate with Hemingway or bullfight with Michelle Kwan? We said we'd kill Peter and fuck Paul and marry Mary. We said we'd kill Curly and marry Larry and fuck Mo. We did not play Twister. We did not play Connect Four. We did not play Jumanji. One of our 20 questions was, is it a woman? Another was, is she someone we know? We counted red and blue cars on the interstate. It wasn't dangerous. We stood smack dab in the center lane and semis and buses and SUVs passed right through us and we didn't feel a thing. Would you rather be the King of Queens or the Prince of Newark, we asked. Would you rather be the Earl of Sandwich or the Duke of Earl? Sometimes 20 questions were enough, and sometimes they weren't. Does she still think of me was one of our 20 questions. Does she remember me? 
Did she cry at my funeral? Did she place flowers at my grave? There were always more red cars than blue cars, but still we counted them. 101, 102, 103, 104. We did not play Battleship. We did not play Don't Wake Daddy. We said we'd kill Huey and fuck Dewey and marry Louie. We said we'd marry Snap and kill Crackle and fuck Pop. After we died, we held a weekly spelling bee. One of us called out the words and the rest stood in line and worked out the phonetics in our heads. With no dictionary to consult, there were constant accusations of proctor malfeasance, contestants swearing upon their mothers and their own graves that their words contained two L's, one N, a silent G, E before I. Never had we ever gotten to Phoenix. Never had we ever been walking in Memphis. Never had we ever left our heart in San Francisco. Never had we ever seen that old Kentucky moon. Would you rather be handsome and illiterate or ingenious and hideous, we asked. Would you rather be poor and able-bodied or wealthy and quadriplegic? Would you rather die peacefully a virgin or make love to a beautiful woman who immediately after you orgasm thrusts her hand inside your chest and tears out your heart? We said we'd marry the good and fuck the bad and kill the ugly. We said we'd marry our first loves and kill our second loves and fuck the ones who got away. We watched impotently in strangers' homes as the strangers yelled bingo, jinga, yahtzee, sorry. One of our twenty questions was, do I haunt her in her dreams? Another was, in her dreams, am I still alive?
ride the Ferris wheel. A hundred fifty feet below, children eat cotton candy and funnel cakes and guess the strong man's weight and play skee ball and pop a shot and whack a mole. Is death ride the Ferris wheel alone, always alone? The full-throated inveiglements of the barkers, the cheery melodies of a carousel calliope, the strike of mallets, the pop of air rifles, the crunch of stepped-on salted peanuts, as death ascends and descends, ascends and descends, is lifted above the striped tents and the sawdust and the flashing epileptic lights, then return to the earth continuously until the carny with the topless mermaid on his left bicep decides death's ride is over. Death goes bowling. Death sings karaoke. Death falls face first into a ball pit. Death plummets down the Pacific Northwest's tallest water slide on a flimsy yellow foam mat. Death plays goalie on a co-ed indoor soccer team in Ruston, Louisiana. The opposing team scores on death effortlessly, the game well out of hand by the end of the first half, but death's teammates do not chastise him, do not tell him to look alive out there, get his head in the game, do not pull him in favor of Latrice, who played goalie for a D3 school in college. Do not mention his copious missteps and failures when the team convenes for a post-game meal at Applebee's. At Applebee's, Death orders a white peach sangria. Death orders a seasonal berry and spinach salad. Death orders mozzarella sticks. Death orders the soup of the day. Death flies a kite. Is it wrong for death to fly a kite? Death always on the clock, materializing simultaneously at a three-alarm fire in New Jersey and at a backyard drowning in Sausalito and at an armed robbery gone wrong in Detroit. Death never at the funerals, no time for funerals, and yet there he is, on the beach at Montauk, the sky postcard blue and the waves lapping at his feet and the kite rising magnificently higher and higher into the air, soaring to the heavens, perfect kite weather, and yet death feels guilty, always guilty, enjoying the simple beauty of the kite dancing capriciously in the unblemished sky. Death boogie boards, death roller skates, death jump ropes double dutch, death kicks the can. Death doesn't go to funerals because they make him feel even guiltier than flying a kite does. Are the funerals his fault? They are and they aren't. Instead, death goes to weddings, homecomings, proms, golden jubilees, quinceaneras, bar and bat mitzvahs. But no one dances with him, no one speaks to him, no one offers him a name tag or a cheese plate or a cup of fruit punch. Death does the watusi, the mashed potato, the time warp, 
the twist. Death does the twist alone, always alone. Death plays team trivia at a bar in downtown Poughkeepsie. Death's team name, Danzig with the stars. No one is on Danzig with the stars, but death. Death finishes third, wins a $10 bar tab, orders a Michelob light. Death drinks alone, always alone. Death sits on a teeter-totter. Death hangs on the monkey bars. Death waits on a tire swing. No one pushes death. Christmas time, the icing white lawns in the suburbs, the exhaust gray snowbanks in the city, the Salvation Army bell ringers, the fat men with fake beards, the chaos of parking lots, the tinsel, the eggnog, the yuletide cheer. This holiday season, Lucky and his buddy Carl are department store elves on contract through December 24th. Their responsibilities include crowd control, customer service, light clerical and custodial work, and other duties as assigned. Diane is at a private liberal arts college out east, but is certain to return home any day now. Lucky printed out her school's academic calendar in August and pinned it to a corkboard above the head of his bed. In the department store, Lucky and Carl stand beneath an archway of giant PVC candy canes and welcome children and their parents to Santa's Enchanted Wonderland, where there are gingerbread lampposts, gumdrop vending machines, cottony piles of fake snow, hour and a half waits for a photo op with an independently contracted Santa. Holiday favorites play from speakers hidden in artificial pines and nutcrackers and fiberglass reindeer as families glacially advance in snaking cordon lines toward Santa's cushioned wooden chair, bleary-eyed parents escaping to their kindles and iPods and iPads until their children are finally perched on Father Christmas's lap, digital cameras and cell phones capturing their offspring's joy and fleeting innocence, a professional photographer dressed as the ghost of Christmas present with a 36-megapixel SLR on standby, high-quality photo discs available at the Enchanted Wonderland gift shop, starting at $24.95. On smoke breaks, Carl and Lucky share a pack of Marlboros on the sidewalk outside the mall food court, temperatures in the single digits, the parking lot gridlocked with station wagons carrying Douglas firs on their roof racks, and minivans with the heads of plastic shepherds and snowmen peeking out of their partially closed trunks. Still in green elven felt and nylon tights, Carl and Lucky shiver as they exhale plumes of cigarette smoke into the arctic air, car horns blaring from every direction as traffic grinds to a halt in the jam-packed parking aisles, Hondas and Buicks and 
Toyotas and Fords frozen as if the entire lot were suspended in a snow globe, the only movement the occasional rolled down window or shaken fist or extended middle finger. As the two part-time elves shiver and smoke, Lucky informs Carl of his latest plans for wooing Diane, a romantic sleigh ride, a surprise performance of the Nutcracker Suite at her airport baggage terminal, a living nativity on her front lawn, three wise men bringing Diane body lotion, chocolate-covered pretzels, and a J.C. Penny gift certificate as Lucky leaps out of the manger in swaddling clothes and asks her to marry him as a local community choir dressed as shepherds, angels, Joseph, and the Virgin Mary sing Silent Night. Carl is unimpressed. He tells Lucky he needs to get over that girl. Lucky says he's thinking of sliding down Diane's chimney in a red wool suit on Christmas morning, but is concerned about the resulting soot stains costing him the security deposit on his Santa outfit rental. Back in the Wonderland, by the reindeer carousel, ticket-redeeming children bobbing up and down and spinning round and round on Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Carl reminds Lucky that Diane lives over a thousand miles away, that she's seen someone else, that nine months ago her ex-boyfriend's teammates beat Lucky so badly he lost all memory of February through March of 2011 and still experiences crippling headaches whenever he's exposed to the colors maize or blue for an extended length of time. Lucky's response, as always, is that Diane is the one. The one, says Carl. The one? You know how many people are on this planet? Six billion? Seven billion? You know how logistically awful it would be if there were only one person in the world you were truly meant for? You know what a terrible, impossible Where's Waldo that would be? But see, that's not how it works. That's the beauty of this world. There's no monopoly on your heart. Love is a free market. There are endless possibilities. The cosmetics girls at Nordstrom. The pretty genius at the Apple Store. The elf with the amazing body who works the candy cane kiosk Tuesdays and Thursdays. The girl from the Food Court Panda Express who just lit my cigarette. But I don't want the cosmetics girls, says Lucky. I don't want an elf with an amazing body. I don't want a pretty genius. I just want Diane. On smoke breaks, sometimes Carl and Lucky witness acts of desperation and violence. Haggard, gift-wrapped box-laden mothers spewing profanities and spitting on windshields irate Christmas tree-lugging fathers, kicking motorists' tires, and making parking median snow angels that spell the words, fuck you. A man cut off by the driver of a Hyundai accent, exiting his still-running car and climbing onto the Hyundai's hood, the hysterical parking aisle rager tearing off his clothes and screaming dialogue from It's a Wonderful Life at passing shoppers until mall security covers his naked body with a canvas banner advertising the mall's annual holiday eggnog off and 
whisks him away to parts unknown. As a security guard enters the crazed man's car and waits for a parking space along with the rest of the idling holiday hordes, Lucky tells Carl that what draws him to Diane is a physical property beyond his control, a kind of magnetism. He says he's not exactly sure how magnets work. He learned about poles and currents and magnetic fields in science class, but the specific details are hazy. But he remembers in the textbooks there were diagrams of tiny arrows leaping from each pole, traveling in semicircles, always arriving at the opposite side. And that's how he feels about Diane. Unseen, inescapable forces attracting him to her, carrying him to her without his blessing or consent. Tiny arrows overruling his judgment and self-interest and motor functions, causing him to defy reason and logic and statistical probability in reckless pursuit of her single-syllable agreement again and again and again. A children's choir is heard, faintly, from somewhere within the food court. The lilting opening bars of good Christian men rejoice, and Carl asks Lucky if he's even been with a girl before, if he's hooked up, copped a feel, bumped and ground, gotten some, hit it, done it, tapped it, knocked boots, double dipped, rumbled in the jungle, Packed his pickled pepper, had an afternoon delight. Has he kissed a girl? Has he even touched one? Has he been led by the hand into a darkened bedroom? Felt the sweet gust of hot breath coursing through his ear canal? Witnessed a girl slowly and deliberately removing her clothing? Most transformative and magical moment in a young boy's life. Lucky says he doesn't think about any other girls, ever. No daydreams, no imagined conversations or scenarios, no split-second fleeting fantasies. It's not that he's not attracted to them, it's just that there's no room in his conscious or subconscious for anyone else. Every dream, every scheme, every idle moment, it's always Diane. But it's such a waste, says Carl. All these girls, beautiful girls, every color, shape, size, fetching blondes, foxy redheads, tremendous brunettes, limitless permutations of interests, backgrounds, personalities, possibilities, ideas, something for everyone. Forget the one, hundreds, thousands, millions of girls who could make your days a little brighter, and your winters a little warmer, and your idle hours a little less lonely, and you're giving it all up in a futile quest for something unobtainable, when at the end of the day, Diane is just a girl, 70% water, 20% protein, trace amounts of glucose and vitamins and nucleotides and free radicals, not so different from any other girl in this town, any other girl at this mall, girls who can make your life just as happy and fulfilled and complete, 
Look at that girl from Panda Express over there. Look at her smoking out here in five degrees Fahrenheit all alone. Look at those long eyelashes of hers, Disney eyelashes, fluttering like hummingbird wings, drive me damn near crazy every time. You don't think a girl like that is worth a shot? You don't think a girl like that could make you happy? But Lucky doesn't even glance at her. He says he appreciates Carl's advice, but there's only one girl out there for him, and it's Diane. It's got to be Diane. It transcends the known mechanics of attraction. Hormones, pheromones, dopamine, all that jazz. It's something else, something that can't be explained. Lucky tells Carl about an article he just read on the incredible sense of direction of homing pigeons who can be dropped off thousands of miles from their birthplaces and yet still somehow find their way home. For years, scientists believed the pigeon's orientational genius was made possible by special blood cells sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field, which the birds utilized in conjunction with the sun as their compass, their map. But recent studies had shown that the theory is wrong. The blood cells aren't sensitive to magnetic fields. The scientists had thought they had it all sorted out, and now they're completely bamboozled. Carl says, what do pigeons have to do with Diane? And Lucky says that maybe some things are beyond our comprehension. Maybe some of us are bound together by apparitions and exceptions to our physical laws. Maybe, despite every well-reasoned argument Carl formulates to persuade Lucky to forget about Diane, he's always going to pursue her until they're either married or buried. Lucky says he knows that everything Carl just said makes perfect sense. He knows he's got an uphill climb. He knows the odds aren't in his favor. But what the article got him thinking was, maybe those pigeons don't even want to go home. Maybe they don't have any choice in the matter either. Maybe they just start flapping their wings, and suddenly, 500 miles later, they're back where they started. Surprised as hell. The end is the beginning, is the end. In the parking lot, traffic is a snarled nightmare. One exit is blocked by an abandoned Christmas tree, another by a stalled 1974 Volkswagen bus whose engine, despite repeated attempts, won't restart. A driver leaves his Dodge Stratus and weeps into a snowbank. Crying infants wail inside a Toyota Prius, a Buick Skylark, a Hyundai Sonata, a PT Cruiser. Fistfights erupt over parking spaces. A man in a Santa suit kicks a fender. A couple dressed as Mary and Joseph scream and throw fistfuls of snow at each other outside their Chevy Silverado as a choir of children in white cloth robes emerges from the food court and walks alongside the frozen traffic, carrying lit candles, singing an angelic soprano in alto voices, for unto us a child is born.
after we died, we began forgetting. They were inconsequential things at first, like the taste of Funyuns, the aroma of pine sol, the subtle difference between the way head and shoulders and selsun blue made our scalps tingle as we massaged, rinsed, repeated. But the longer we remained absent from the land of the living, the more we let slip from our consciousness how to make eggs benedict, how to grip a pitching wedge, how to tie a double Windsor, how to play heart and soul and fury lease. The gaps in our memories widening slowly but steadily, our pasts irreversibly eroding like flooded shorelines. We tried to stall the exodus of our memories by reminding each other of fading moments and sensations before they were lost, described to each other the chill of December, the mugginess of July, the scent of fallen leaves after a November rain. But the more we spoke, the less our words meant, our attempts at mnemonic preservation yielding diminishing returns, our verbal reconstructions no longer triggering flashes of remembrance, but instead only empty rooms, hollow trunks, abandoned lots. It wasn't long before even our most cherished memories cruelly left us. The warmth of the sun, the sweetness of mint chocolate chip ice cream, the tenderness of a lover's touch. Stripped of so much of what had once satisfied and inspirited and sustained us, we became sullen and angry and channeled our frustrations under tutelage of the veteran dead into a spree of phantasmal mischief, disrupting the free Wi-Fi at Starbucks, toppling shelves of Cheez-Its and Slimfast at the supermarket, causing bowling balls to swerve into gutters and soda machines to vomit Coke Zeros and the drive-through intercom at Wendy's to play the Michael McDonald album, if that's what it takes, in its entirety, hungry customers shouting their orders in vain as the intercom responded with the smooth electric piano chords of I keep forgetting, parenthesis, every time you're near. We knew now why the dead haunted the laundromat. We understood the bitterness and malice of the deceased, the jealousy they had for the living. The smallest pleasure suffused us with rage. A back massage, a glass of lemonade, a milk dud, a gently oscillating fan. What treasures were guarded in the vault of existence how devastating it was to be locked out eternally on the other side. Did we exist or did we not exist? Perhaps this quandary is what fueled our campaign of terror and harassment. Every ashen face and trembling hand and blood-curdling scream as we haunted the cemetery and the Olive Garden and the Texaco, a confirmation that we still held influence in the world we had lost, that we were dead but not dust, numb but not nothing. How we envied our former classmates who could not fathom the despair that consumed our dreamless days. The sickness we felt, watching them smile and laugh and high-five and hold hands, oblivious to our emptiness and pain. 
On graduation day, we materialized in our old school gym with the intention of knocking over the podium, making the PA cut out during the valedictorian's commencement speech, repeatedly triggering the scoreboard buzzer, levitating girls' robes over their heads. But when we saw the graduates walk in, in the flesh, boys and girls with whom we had once conducted chemistry experiments and shared cafeteria tater tots and smoked poorly rolled joints in the woods behind the athletic fields and felt up in the back seats of our parents' cars. Our incorporeal hearts just weren't in it anymore, and we instead merely watched as the surviving class of 2012 strode single file onto the stage collected their diplomas, shook the principal's hand, and tossed their mortar boards into the HVAC-chilled air. Later that night, the graduates ate steak dinners with extended family and drank kegged bush light in unsupervised basements and backyards and lost or maintained or ambiguously altered their virginities and made plans for the summer, the fall, the reunion in 2022, while we instead listlessly haunted the Texaco, the ex still missing, the attendant on Vicodin and Sudafed, the gossip magazines claiming that Jesus walked among us again in studded leather Dolce & Gabbana thongs that were the must-have sandals of the summer. July. Lucky and Carl are new seasonal hires at Ye Old Colonial Water Park near Exit 171 on the interstate, where visitors can watch reenactments of the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Battle of Saratoga while relaxing in red, white, and blue inner tubes, lazily floating down a shallow, concrete-bottom version of the Delaware, or in an East India Company tea crate, slowly ascending a lift hill, and then dropped it 30 miles per hour into a simulacrum of Boston Harbor. Diane is studying abroad in Argentina for the next six weeks. Buenos Aires, stuck with a red pushpin on the map of South America that Lucky's taped to his bedroom wall. All summer, he's been practicing his proposals in Spanish. Mi amor, mi flor, mi vida, quieres casarte conmigo? At Ye Old Colonial Water Park, Lucky and Carl have both been assigned to the town square, where they demonstrate how colonial Americans smithed iron and churned butter and handmade barrels as visiting children take turns soaking them with massive water cannons. Neither Lucky nor Carl have been trained in barrel making or blacksmithing, but their manager Steve says it doesn't really matter so long as they can withstand 150 psi sprays of water to the face. On lunch breaks, Lucky and Carl drape towels over their sopping wet waistcoats and breeches and 
eat shepherd's pie and Carolina fish muddle on the banks of the lazy river, populated by daytime drinking townies and sunburned tourists from Illinois and high school dropouts and Continental Army uniforms reenacting the crossing of the Delaware every hour on the hour. George Washington is portrayed by a 19-year-old inhalant fiend named Skeeter. When not crossing the Delaware, Skeeter huffs cans of hairspray and static cling remover beneath the twisting water troughs of Paul Revere's log ride, too, if by sea. When the summer began, Carl was still intent on persuading Lucky to quit his ill-conceived courting of Diane and instead redirect his affections toward the luggy amber wave pool of grain lifeguards or the girl who roamed the water park informing visitors about the life of Betsy Ross while dressed in nothing but an American flag. But by the time of the big yield Colonial Water Park 4th of July let freedom ring somewhere spectacular, Carl had exhausted every argument and counter-argument and counter-counter-argument he could muster against Lucky's logic-defined love, fireworks exploding and brilliant patriotic spiders of red, white, and blue over Carl's head as he finally surrendered, said to Lucky, all right, fine, you win. Now, instead, Carl seeks to improve whatever microscopic chance of success Lucky may possess by advising alternative methods, more sensible techniques. Mariachi bands haven't won Diane's love, nor have chocolate pretzel-bearing wise men, miniature horses, mime troops, string quartets. The problem, Carl says, is that a girl like Diane, who goes to school with future lawyers, surgeons, hedge fund managers, lobbyists for defense contractors and natural gas conglomerates and pharmaceutical companies, is going to marry somebody, and right now, lucky, is nobody. The guys at Diane's school driving Porsches and Alfa Romeos and Aston Martins to campus while Lucky crams between undocumented housemaids and methadone outpatients on his mom's bus every morning while wearing breeches and a tricorner hat. Lucky says he's not nobody and money isn't everything and Carl says, sure, money isn't everything and love conquers all. But is love going to make Lucky and Diane's mortgage payments? Is love going to cover their health insurance deductible? Is love going to pay for their honeymoon to Greece and their winter timeshare in West Palm and their children's private school tuition? And so Lucky vows to become somebody. The proposals cease. The singing telegrams and the ticker tape parades and the hollow cakes and instead he spends the summer reinventing himself, cultivates his golf swing, learns the verbiage of the stock ticker, peppers his speech with the words heretofore and notwithstanding, goes to the post office and the supermarket and the Texaco in an Italian worsted wool suit. He's perhaps not yet somebody, his commute still on the 47 bus and his bank account bone dry and his job interviews all ending with tepid handshakes and empty promises, but he looks like somebody. 
lucky studying the faces of men in Armani and Gucci and Versace ads, practicing their vacant, moneyed stares as he rides public transit, purchases scratch-off lottery tickets at the Texaco, demonstrates butter-churning to 12-year-olds soaking him with water cannons. The fall arrives, the air chills, Diane heads back east, the water park shuts down, and Lucky finds work behind a supermarket meat counter, goes home every day smelling of raw pork and chicken and beef, and repeats to himself in front of the mirror, I am somebody, I am somebody, I am somebody. His diction by this point, impeccable, his posture, regal, his golf game, greatly improved. Thanksgiving circled on his wall-hung printout of Diane's academic calendar, a deadline for his transformation from nobody to somebody, the world premiere of Lucky 2.0. How Lucky finds out about the accident is he rings Diane's doorbell on Thanksgiving Day with an engagement ring in his pocket and a casserole dish of stuffing in his hands, and after five minutes of rehearsing his prepared speech on Diane's doorstep, a neighbor informs him that there's been an awful smash-up on Speedway Road and Diane's folks and sister are all at the hospital. It's on the front page of the paper the next day. Diane's Volkswagen Jetta versus a Nissan Altima full of seniors at Rosa Parks. Death skips the funerals, instead goes on a series of blind dates. The awkward hugs, the stilted pleasantries, the poorly received pecks on the cheek. Death sits on a bar stool, a park bench, a patio chair, a diner's corner booth, and lies his way through the preliminary Q&A. Where are you from? How are you doing? What do you do? Death says he's from Cleveland. Death says he's from Albuquerque, Hartford, the Florida Panhandle, Dallas-Fort Worth, the San Andreas Fault. Death's eyes smoldering ember red as he says he works in advertising. His bony fingers rattling nervously against the tabletop as he says he practices sports medicine operates a bed and breakfast, manages a Casey in the Sunshine Band cover band, monitors beach water bacteria levels for the Department of Health. The dates chiming in with their own truths or half-truths or falsehoods as death struggles to think about anything other than how these women will die. Arrhythmias, blood infections, carbon monoxide, liver failures, drownings, maimings, bottles of chalk-white pills. Death sees their ends as they speak about their childhoods. He witnesses their final breaths as they discuss their interests, their careers, their families, the summers they spent volunteering in Peru. Death tries to block out his fatalistic presentiments and banter good-naturedly about pop music and international travel and reality television, but their fates loom heavily over them like thick clouds of acrid smoke. 
death unable to enjoy their wit or intellect or sweetness or beauty, the dates excusing themselves to visit the restroom and never returning. But death will return. He always does. On a speedboat, a dune buggy, a tandem bicycle, an autogyro, a pogo stick, a monorail, the back of a majestic Indian elephant. died, we couldn't believe that life went on without us. The birds singing in the trees, the sun dappling the morning traffic, the leaves rustling in the wind. While we lived, we always felt that the birds sang for us, the sun shone for us, the trees gracefully swayed for only us. And yet everything continued, uninterrupted, despite her disappearance from this earthly plane. A revelation that devastated us. The survival of our families and friends and neighbors providing no consolation or solace. It is true, of course, that we were not entirely forgotten. We saw our siblings mournfully clutch old sweatshirts and comic books and magazines we had lent them. 
We saw our parents stare at mantelpiece portraits and thumb through old photo albums and scrapbooks and softly weep. We saw the subtle tightening of our ex-girlfriend's faces when our names came up in conversation, the hint of sadness in our friend's laughter as they celebrated us with half-true anecdotes of the pranks we had pulled, the lawn ornaments we had stolen, the drugs we had taken, the liquor we had consumed. We saw the memorial on the side of the road, flowers woven in between fence links, pinwheels stuck in the grass, photos and mementos and messages on construction paper hearts that reminded passing pedestrians and motorists of what was taken from us in the four-way intersection, of how in a split second so much could be lost. We saw the one girl who survived in the ICU wing of the hospital, kept alive by an alien apparatus of tubes and machines, ever asleep just as we were ever awake. And we saw the boy who visited her every day with black beauty roses and chocolate-covered pretzels and a diamond ring, the boy clasping her hand and dropping to one knee and asking the question that burned like an eternal supernova within his heart while death lounged in the adjacent rooms, keeping the patient's company, kissing them gently on their cheeks, whispering tenderly into their ears, sweetheart, sunflower, precious, calabacita, my love, it is time. I got a little shy and lost in so steady guy Feel like I saw you did We were penniless and I was doing our best I feel like I saw you did You're smiling but I don't believe you still think that I would never leave you You're smiling, but I don't believe you There was not enough of me to keep you always company I feel like I saw you dead Spending all my nights in the world's prettiest lace I feel like I saw you dead You're smiling but I don't believe you You still think that I would never leave you
You still think 